Father, we really empathize with Paul because um, he's been here faithfully every week for, gosh, five years, maybe six. And uh, he, he was enjoying life and uh, doing well and running his medical practice and flying his plane and lifting his weights and And then uh, this stuff shows up, and he's lasted longer than most guys last. We, uh, we have a lot of appreciation for Paul. That, that book he put together with Dave has touched a lot of people. But we know that every day he, uh, he fights. He fights just to... Uh, he fights just to breathe. He fights just to, it, it, every day is survival. And, and we pray for Paul. We pray for his wife. They've been through so much. I, I ask that you would be very near to them. I ask that uh, they would have a real sense of your presence. Uh, they are a couple that have honored their vows of being committed for better or worse in sickness and in health. And uh, Paul is fortunate to have a wife that is committed to Christ and to him. And they're, they're weary and they're tired. So we, we commit them into your hands. We, we pray, Lord, that... Uh, We pray that your will will be done there. I pray for encouragement for them. These, these folks are dealing with things that uh, we don't know anything about, most of us in this room. Some of us do, but most of us don't. They've had uh, incredible loss. But at the same time, Paul has had a great impact because of his spirit, because of his attitudes. And although he can't speak anymore, he can sure communicate with his eyes. And uh, we love this brother, and we pray your favor and your goodness and your kindness upon him and his family. For the rest of us, help us not to be complainers. We're all dealing with stuff. We've all got issues. And some of them are very, very difficult issues. But uh, we're able to walk in here. And we're able to feed ourselves. And we're able to talk. We're able to send a, an email quickly. Paul can send an email, but it takes him, it takes him hours to construct a sentence or two. So we want to say thank you for being so gracious to us. Give us perspective when we get discouraged. Help us to be mindful of how favored we are. We don't want to be whiners. We don't want to be complainers. We have much to be thankful for, much to be thankful for. 
but we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Howard Head was a lousy athlete who changed two sports. The first sport that he changed was skiing. Howard Head uh, grew up in the Northeast, and as a kid, his family would make their way to the uh, ski resort in, in Vermont, sometimes New Hampshire, but he was such a bad athlete. He, couldn't, he just didn't have the coordination. And he tried it as a kid and didn't do too well. And then as he got older and got out of Harvard, he decided he was going to try again and take some lessons. But virtually every time he went to ski, almost every time he skied, he broke the skis. He was so uncoordinated. Uh, now, he had a good enough self-image that he thought the problem was not with him. <laughs> he thought the problem was with the equipment. He was a brilliant engineer. He won 6000 bucks in a poker game. And he decided that what he was going to do on the side was that he was going to take some composite materials that were being used in aircraft technology, and he was going to make a set of skis out of them. And he kept trying them and trying them and trying them. And he'd take them up to the ski resort, and he'd give them to the instructors, and he'd try them, and he'd try them, and every set of skis broke. But somewhere after his 40th attempt, he hit the formula right. And nobody had seen skis like this. All the best skis were made out of hickory. These weren't made out of hickory. And different people, he'd make a set, and somebody would see it, and somebody would try it. And, and within uh, 10 years, head skis were the dominant skis in the skiing industry. And it wasn't too many years later that he sold out and became a multimillionaire. Well, built a big house, decided he'd take up tennis, built a tennis court in his backyard, got out there. The guy was, the guy was ridiculous. He was so bad. Went down to the country club and started taking lessons from the pro, and literally the guy at one point asked him not to come back. That's, that's absolutely true. But once again, this guy had a pretty good self-image, so he was convinced that the problem was not with him. The problem was with the equipment. Uh, the uh, instructor wouldn't give him any more lessons, so he bought a ball machine, a Prince ball machine. And uh, as he was using it to return balls, he thought, you know what? This, this, he started looking at it. He said, this could be improved. So he spent the next six months improving the ball machine, and within a year, it was the dominant machine of all tennis ball machines because he'd improved it so greatly. Uh, oh, by the way, he was so motivated, he bought the entire company of Prince. They also made rackets, but a lot of people made rackets. Uh, he got to thinking, he got to thinking, you know what? I could build a better racket. I built a better ski. I could build a better racket. If I could build a better racket, I'd be a better tennis player. So he starts working on a, on a, on a racket. Um, he started coming up with some crazy designs. Uh, he came up with a design where, which basically the racket was three inches wider and two inches longer. 
And he was fooling around with it, and he showed it to a tennis pro, and the guy says, you can't do that. He goes, no, you can do that. He says, you can't do that. That racket's too big. And he said, no, I looked it up. And there are rules. There are all kinds of rules in tennis. But there are, there's no rule about what object you use to return the ball. You could use a waffle iron. <laughs> and the guy said, it's legal? He said, it's legal. And he began to formulate, and he began to try different things, and he began to, and then personally he began to play, and he actually was able to return some balls, and he was able to get some top spin. And the Prince racket became the dominant racket. Rackets were all the same. They were all wood. They are all the same size. And then this crazy-looking, oblong, egg-shaped racket. And six, seven, eight years later, he sells it out for 54 million bucks. Uh, he was still a lousy athlete. <laughs> but Howard Head literally changed two sports. God changes lives. God changes minds. God changes hearts. God changes circumstances. God changes our contentment. God, God changes whatever God wants to change. If you were here last week, we, uh, we started looking into the Red Sea story. And if you're here for the first time, you might be thinking, well, why the heck would you do that? You know, 1 Corinthians 10 says of the Old Testament, it says of uh, the people of Israel and the stories in the Old Testament. It says these things were written for our instruction. I'm grateful that um, when I was a kid, I was taught the stories of the Old Testament. You know, we got a lot of kids graduating from high school in this country who can't read. That's pretty tragic. What's even more tragic is we have a lot of kids in Christian homes that don't know the stories of the Bible. Uh, I went to Sunday school, and I learned the stories of the Bible. Um, I had, uh, at my house, we had some Bible story books. I have seven volumes at my house right now that I've had for 50 years. It's called the, the Bible Story Book. It's in seven volumes, and my folks bought that when I was seven years old. Now, I had Bible story books before that. But they are so wonderfully illustrated. In my mind, I can still see, and I haven't looked at those books in years, but I can still see the painting of Daniel in the lion's den. I got that picture etched in my mind. Uh, the one where Jesus is returning to the earth. Um, uh, the one of Samson. Those stories were written for our instruction. Uh, I remember my grandma. I was spending the night at her house, and I remember her reading to me. My first memory of Daniel is her reading to me the story of Daniel and then his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, you guys who have kids at home, you guys that have small kids at home, let me give you a tip. You put your kids to bed and turn off that game, unless it's a playoff game. 
I mean, you know, you got to have some priorities. <laughs> it's not a playoff game. You might want to turn it off because two days later, you're not going to remember anything about that game, are you? But get up there and read to your kids. They don't want to go to bed anyway, do they? Have you noticed kids don't want to go to sleep? And you want them to go to sleep. Well, work with that. If your kids are young, read to them. And don't read them, you know, Mickey and Donald. I mean, the way Disney's going, they're going to have those guys in a relationship before long. <laughs> give, give, them, give them the Word of God. Give them the Scriptures. That'd be a good use of time, don't you think? Now, we're going back to the Red Sea story, and every guy in here knows the Red Sea story. Uh, the reason we're going through it is that there's some stuff in here that's worth chewing on. There's some stuff in here that's worth pondering. Because, you see, it was an event that took place in their life. And what we're going to do this fall, we're going we're to not spend all our time on the Red Sea. We're going to look at some different key events that are recorded for us in the Scripture. Our lives are comprised of events. And we mentioned last week that if you got a day timer at the beginning of the year, you take your calendar and you write out certain events that you've planned. But in all of our lives, there are events that as far, well, that we don't know about. They're not on our calendar, but they're on God's calendar. There are unforeseen events and there are unplanned events. Unforeseen by you and unplanned by you. But they are foreseen by God and they are planned by God. Uh, in, in our lives, um, God has a plan for our life. God has a very detailed plan. God is a micromanager. And this story of the Red Sea was part of God's plan for the people of Israel. But, but it goes beyond just the Red Sea as something that was done for them so that they might learn some things. See, this event that took place in their lives has all kinds of significance for us uh, because this was an event of crisis. And as we go through life, we find ourselves facing off with uh, crises. We don't plan the crisis. We don't uh, foresee the crisis, but it, it just shows up one day. The phone can ring or you can get an email. Uh, your life can change in 10 seconds, and suddenly you're thrown into a crisis. That's, that's exactly what happened to these folks. Now, when the crisis comes, it's an event that hasn't happened by accident. It's an event that hasn't happened by, by chance. When a crisis comes, it's part of God's plan. How many of you guys believe that God has a plan for your life? Okay, good. I'm glad you believe that because it's true. Part of God's plan for your life and part of God's plan for my life involves crisis. I don't know how many years ago it was that uh, there was a real popular movie that was out, and uh, we decided one night, Mary and I, to watch this movie, uh, is it Castaway, with Tom Hanks. So, you know, we put it in the DVD, and I'm watching this thing. And uh, I didn't like that movie, personally. I didn't like it at all. T to me, it was... It, 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 it was that movie captured the absolute foolishness, futility, and stupidity of our secular culture. 
if you saw the movie, here's a guy that does pretty well. He's a FedEx executive, and he's going somewhere, you know, Fiji or somewhere. And the plane, you know, the, the, the plane goes down. And this sucker wakes up, and he's on some island somewhere. And, I mean, he knows enough to know he's about 1,800 miles off the shipping lanes. And he's there for the duration. Uh, it, basically, it's a ripoff of, of Robinson Crusoe. So this guy's on an island, and, you know, so he's trying to make his way, and he's going through all the adjustments, and, you know, he's just trying to figure out life. He's going to be there for a while, and he was there for a while. He's lonely. He's by himself. He's trying to make it. And, and, and you know what becomes his source of encouragement? And you know what becomes his, his source of connection and his source of stability in his life? A volleyball. A volleyball. And he kind of dresses this volleyball up and he kind of paints a face on it. And, he, and this volleyball named Wilson becomes his anchor to get him through the crisis and to give him hope for the future when there is no hope. Now that pretty much to me sums up the the secular culture in which we live. I didn't think it was too real, because I'm going to tell you something. When that kind of crisis happens in somebody's life, and they are basically abandoned on an island, as far as they know, for the rest of their life, and they're not sure they're going to survive, and they're not sure they're going to make it, and they're not sure they'll be rescued, at some point, any sane person at some point would get desperate enough to call out, not to a volleyball, but to God Almighty. God's never mentioned in that movie. It really, it really kind of hacked me off. It hacked me off so much that I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I went down the next day to Barnes & Noble, and I got Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe. Um, I knew the story. I couldn't remember it. Have I ever read this book? I couldn't remember. I, I think... I think I was assigned the book, <laughs> but I'm not sure I ever read it. That was, back then, that wasn't unusual for me. I might have read the cliff note, but I didn't read the book. So I got Daniel Defoe's book, and I started reading it. I'm going to tell you something. That's a book. That book shook England to the core when it came out. Uh, basically, the story was about a young man raised in a Christian home with a godly father. And here this boy is in his teenage years, and he's trying to figure out life, and his father gives him some wise counsel, and there's no way in the w world he's listened to his father. So he runs off and decides one day he just went, he, he lived in a port city in England. He went down, and he signed up on a ship. And he took off, and he was on this ship, and they're out about two, three weeks, and this storm hits, pretty common. But this storm, when he saw the fear on the faces of the old sailors, he knew this was a storm. He was sick to it. I mean, the guy could hardly stand up. He was just green. He was just puking like crazy. And it was so bad. And it was so out of control. And, and, and even the wise veterans were, were frightened. He called out to God and he said, God, this is all in Robinson Crusoe. If you save me, I'll go back home and I'll listen to my father and I'll obey his counsel and I'll give my life to you. Well, the storm subsided. And he forgot all about his promise. Actually, he didn't forget about it. He just didn't want to do it. 
So then he goes back out again. And he went out, as I recall, three times. And he'd made all these promises to God, and the third time out is when his life fell apart. Um, and it's when he is abandoned, and he's on this island by himself. He thought he was by himself until he realized there were cannibals on the island. And then he became desperate. Um, I, have, I have some sermons in my uh, study from C.H. Spurgeon, his ministry at uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London from about 1860 to about 1890, roughly. And you can flip through the index, and you'll see, he's got all his titles, and you'll see the Robinson Crusoe sermon. I remember the first time I saw it, it said the Robinson Crusoe sermon. It's based on Psalm 50. Uh, Psalm 50, and I believe it's verse 13, says, Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will honor me. You, you know where C.H. Uh, Spurgeon got that? You know why he called it the C.H. Spurgeon sermon? Because it's the center of the entire story of Robinson Crusoe. At a certain point, when he became desperate and he became panicked, and his life fell apart, and his life changed dramatically when there was no volleyball to talk to. He called out to Almighty God. He remembered the verse from being raised in a Christian home. He remembered Psalm 50. Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will rescue you, and you will honor me. Uh, in order for God to get Crusoe's attention, God had to change some things in his life. Now, that's what the Red Sea is all about. We're on a journey. We're on a trail. We're on a path. Uh, God is leading us. You can look back over your life and see the chapters you've come through. But God has chapters written for you in the future that you know nothing about that are as clearly written as the ones you've already come through. You just can't see them yet. Part of the plan and part of the story that God has written for your life and my life involve events that we don't know anything about, and they involve events that uh, involve crisis. Crisis. So let's go to Exodus chapter 14. We started there last week. There's, there's more to pick up on the story. Howard Head changed two sports, but I want to show you four things in this passage tonight that God changes. And we're going to pick this story up. We, we, we know the story. The point we made last week is that the reason they were at the Red Sea in the first place is that God led them there. Now, I'm going to... I brought this up last week, and I'm not sure we did it, but flip to the back of your Bible. You're probably going to find some maps there, and I, I think I mentioned it, but we actually didn't do it. Flip to your back, the back of your Bible, and, and start flipping through those maps. And the second map in my Bible is called the Exodus Route and the Conquest of Canaan. And if you look in that, in that map, if you look at that map, uh, you'll, you'll, see, you'll see Egypt. Now, 
you know the story. They've been slaves now for 400 and some years. They went in Egypt when Joseph went into Egypt. And Joseph and his brothers, they're in Egypt. You know all that story. So, but then the Bible says that after Joseph died, that a king arose who didn't know Joseph. And suddenly you had all these Jews, and they're outnumbering the Egyptians. So this guy enslaves the Jews. So for 400 and some years, 430 years, they're, they're basically slaves. Not the entire time. The early years, they were in good shape because of Joseph. But there was a point where they became slaves. So Moses, uh, you know, God raises Moses up. He's going to lead them out. Now, if you look at your map, they're going to go, they're basically going to go to Israel. That's the promised land, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you look at the map and you see Egypt, well, Egypt right there in the north, it, it's it, the, the, the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. If they just had a gone right up the coast, there, there was, uh, they had the Mediterranean Coast Highway that went right up there. And, you know, there's a Denny's about every five miles, and there's, you know, rest stops, and, you know, there's a Starbucks. And, but it would have, that would have been the easy route, because, see, you just go right up the coast, and boom, you're right there. I mean, they could have been in there in a matter of a couple of weeks. But that's not the way God took them. We said last week, and we've said it a number of times in here before, that in our lives, God works providentially, but God also works strangely. God chose not to take them the easy way. If, if your map, you got a map and it shows, God didn't take them right up the coast. God took them south. And then they'll start curly-cueing around before they actually get up there. But the reason he took them south is that you see that body of water down there at the south towards the east. It's called the Red Sea. And if we go back to our passage, and we actually go to chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, and you know the story of the ten plagues and all that stuff. And the last plague was, if you didn't have the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, then your firstborn was taken. Uh, that's what finally broke Pharaoh's spirit and, and, and broke his heart, and he said, Get out of here. Verse 17, now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. The Philistines lived up along the Mediterranean on the coast. Uh, even though it was near, for God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. The point of last week was the reason that they were at the Red Sea is that God led them to the Red Sea. Now, were they concerned when, when Moses said, we're not going up the coast, we're going to go to the... I, I, you don't get a sense they were real concerned. Uh, life was pretty good for them. Uh, they had just plundered the Egyptians. They were wealthy. They had gold, silver. They had jewels. They had more stuff than they'd had in their whole lives. They were a bunch of slaves. But the Egyptians were so sick of them, the Egyptians literally gave them all their wealth and said, get the heck out of here. So they leave. I mean, they're cruising. They're set. Uh, so they go to the Red Sea. Now, do they know there's a crisis waiting for them at the Red Sea? No. But there's a huge crisis that's about to happen that they didn't foresee and they didn't plan, but God foresaw and God planned. And the reason they were at the Red Sea is that God was walking them into a crisis. On purpose, it was part of his plan. Now, maybe where you are in your life, you're in the middle of a crisis. You didn't ask for it. You didn't want it. It might have to do with your marriage. It might have to do with one of your kids. It might be a health... I don't know what it is. See, what we, what we believe about God is critical. We don't serve a wuss God. 
We don't serve a weak God. We serve a God who is in absolute control of everything. Everything. And I, I, I keep hammering that because we have such weak theology in the American church. We, we, we just do. And we hear weak theology on Christian television. But God is absolutely in charge of your life and my life. God is a micromanager. So if you find yourself in a crisis, know this. Know this. The reason you're in the crisis is that God led you to the crisis. You're not there by an accident. You'll say, well, Steve, now wait a minute. What if I've sinned and what if I've been away from the Lord and what if I've made a really stupid move? Did God know you were going to do that before you did it? Yeah. So even if the crisis is quote-unquote of your own making and your own foolishness and your own hard-heartedness, guess what? God is still in control of your life. He's a great God. Aren't you glad that God is sovereign over your mistakes? Aren't you glad that God is sovereign over your screw-ups? I am. I look back over my life and I thought, how could I have been so stupid? I mean, if I were to write an autobiography, that'd be my title. How could I have been so stupid? I mean, I made so many stupid I mean, how? Well, God's sovereign over my stupidity. He's sovereign over your stupidity. He's sovereign over my disobedience. He's sovereign, he's sovereign over everything. That's no shock to him. He knew about it. It's all incorporated and folded into the plan. So whatever the reason is that you find yourself in crisis, basically you're in crisis because God wants you there. He's going to do something. He's going to teach you something. He's going to show us something. Now, here's what I want you to see in this passage. I want you to see, and we got the, we got the, we got the story down here. I want you to see in, in, in chapter 14, beginning with verse 3, I want you to see that God changes minds. I'm going to give you four shots here. And this, if, you, if you're a note taker, this is, this is number one. God changes minds. Uh, here's what God says to Moses, beginning with verse 3. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel. Now, they're out of Israel, right? They've already left. And they're now camped up by the Red Sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel... They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. So he knows where they are. They're up there by the Red Sea. they got mountains, you know, basically on either side of them. Okay. Verse 4, here's what God says. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. Now, see, we had to stop. We talked about this just a little bit last week. You know, when we read that, God's going to harden Pharaoh's heart? Yeah, he's going to harden his heart. Well, that doesn't seem right. Well, it's what Pharaoh wanted. Did you know that? Did you know that? It's what Pharaoh wanted. Um, God never hardens anybody's heart who doesn't want it to be hardened. When the Spirit of God works in our lives and we know truth and it's presented to us and, and we refuse to acknowledge it and we refuse to implement it and we refuse... And we deny it, and this is the whole Romans 1, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Uh, basic talks about mankind and what happens to men. 
We know that God exists. Every man knows that God exists. Romans 1, 18 says, because, and down to the end, God has written the truth of himself on our hearts. And secondly, we see God everywhere we look in nature. When you look at a microscope, there's the handiwork of God. You look into space, you see the handiwork of God. God's everywhere. But the Bible says um, that we have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. The idea is you put truth in a box and you sit on it. But the problem with this truth, it's so strong and it's so pervasive, is you're sitting in the truth trying to hold it down, it keeps coming up. And, and then it says, professing to be wise, they became as fools. And then it talks about the whole downgrade of what happens to people. And, and basically, they don't want to acknowledge God. They know he's there. They know he's there, but they don't want to acknowledge him. So really, the most terrible words that you can read are in Romans 1, verse 18, all the way to the end. And it says, he gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. See, when he gives you over, you've, you've asked and you have willed to be hardened, so he just lets you go. What God does is he withdraws, and you're hardened. Uh, Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. God doesn't say, and he might chase after them. Because you see, God's got a plan. We, we, you know about the foolishness that's going around evangelical churches called open theism. You know about this teaching that says God doesn't know the future. You can pick up Christianity Today magazine, which a lot of pastors read, and they have articles in there. They, they'll have debates about open theism. And one guy who's a prof somewhere will, you know, I'm an open theist. God doesn't know the future. And the other guy, no, God knows the future. Can you imagine that? Some guy who calls himself an evangelical saying God doesn't know the future. I, I mean, I mean, can you believe that? This book is full of prophecy. I, I remember when I was 16 years old, I was on a summer mission project, and before we went on the mission project, we went to El Paso, Texas, and we were in Bible study for a week, and they, some guy showed up, and he had written some book, and he basically told us that God didn't know the future. And I remember getting on the phone that night and calling my dad. I said, Dad, you won't believe what they got this, this guy down here teaching. He said, really? He said, he's teaching that, huh? And I said, yeah. He said, well, he's wrong. I said, yeah, I know. He said, just match it up to the word, Steve. Just match it up to the word. And I did. I knew at 16. I knew at 16. The guy was nuts. You see? I've had guys say, well, God doesn't know the future because he had, well, he obviously knew you were going to be an idiot before you were one. <laughs> Of course, I said it in a loving way. <clears throat> now look at this. Thus I'll harden Pharaoh's heart. He will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did. So we know about the Red Sea story. Here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see. The whole reason we know about the Red Sea story is that they leave Egypt. Why they leave Egypt? Because this guy finally says on the 10th time, all right, I'll let you go. They took, took his firstborn son, dying, get out of here, take our gold, get out of here, I'll let you go. So everything's fine, everything's good. They're on their way to the promised land. So why is it that what's going to happen here in a few verses, they're going to turn around and here comes Pharaoh's army with 600 chariots? Because God 
changes minds. God created the crisis by changing the heart and mind of Pharaoh. You say, well, God didn't change his mind. Yes, God did. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Great verse. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Are you getting this? God turns anybody's heart the way he wants to turn it. And what God did, so here are the people of Israel. They're heading out to the Red Sea. You know, they're full of optimism. You know, they're, they're listening to their Joel Osteen stuff. And they're headed out. <laughs> they're headed to the promised land. And they're all pumped up and everything's good. And, you know, and they're all excited and they all look good. And, <clears throat> and life is sweet. So what happens here? What happens? The whole time, life is sweet, and they're happy, and they've been released, and they're heading to the promised land. God is changing the mind of Pharaoh. I'm going to make this guy go after them and create a crisis. Number two, God changes circumstances. Let's read verses 8 and 9. Actually, let's, let's go ahead and, and pick up 5, 6, and 7 to get the context. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart. Where did that change of heart come from? Hey, let me ask you something. Why was it that Hitler's generals were convinced that the invasion was going to come at Normandy? And Hitler wasn't. Whew. Just a lucky break. No, God controls history and God controls events George Washington's army is trapped in New York they're trapped that British army I mean there's there's and all of a sudden and all of a sudden this fog comes in Whew. what a lucky break and they evaluate, they evacuate in the fog the entire Continental Army. You guys know history? Or did you go to public school? <laughs> <laughs> I went to public school too, but hey, you can still read history. Anyway, uh, how, about, uh, how about the Spanish Armada? That's a good one. Because here comes the Spanish Armada, and I mean, you know, you got Britain and the whole thing, and they're in trouble, and oh my gosh, and... Once again, God controlled the weather. God controls weather. God controls hearts. God controls everything. Everything. Are you uncomfortable with that? Sorry. It's the kind of God he is. It's just the kind of God he is. Oh, by the way, you say, that's not fair. Hey, you know what? You better be glad it's not fair. It's right. Psalm 119.68 says the Lord is good and does good. He can never be indicted. He's never done anything wrong. What he does is right. Even when we don't get it, even when we don't understand it, and even in the moment when we can't see it. I know that's a strong statement. 
but he's good. Okay. All right, now watch what's going to happen here. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart towards the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we've let Israel go from serving us? I mean, hey, hey, our whole base economically is wiped out. We can't do this. So what do they do? He made his chariot ready, and he took his people with him, and he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. This is like, once again, history. This is like all the British troops trapped on Dunkirk. You know that story? So what happens? They take every boat in England. I mean, you got a rowboat, you're going to Dunkirk, and we're going to go get those guys, and we're going to go save their lives. And they did it. Only he wasn't looking to save lives. He's looking to go get them and bring them back into slavery. Verse 8, here it is. Again, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. I love this. They're going out boldly. They're strutting. They got their Rolexes. They got their gold chains. I mean, they're cruising. They'd never had, they'd never had a Visa card, and suddenly they're just dripping in money. So, so the, the, I mean, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. They're strutting all the way out to Egypt. They're wealthy. They're in good shape. They're walking out boldly. Well, they're about to have a change. Because God changes circumstances. I was up in Memphis a few weeks ago. And uh, you, you fly in, and all you see is FedEx. I mean, you know, they basically own Memphis and the airport and huge company. If you know anything about the story. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a legend. There's a story in the FedEx culture about Fred Smith in the early days. And uh, he'd been piloting his own plane since he was in high school, the founder of FedEx. And uh, originally, FedEx started in Little Rock but they wound up moving up to, uh, to Memphis. Uh, he's flying back one day from Memphis down to Little Rock. And the uh, story goes, he just, it's a short flight, but, you know, he made it so many times, he made it in his sleep, and he was just a little bit bored and a little bit, he was just bored. So you know what he decided to do? He flew, um, he just turned the plane upside down, and he flew the rest of the trip upside down. That's what God does to us sometimes. Everything's good. Everything's fine. Everything's cruising. Everything's going just the way it ought to be. And all of a sudden, our lives turn upside down. Why? Because God changes circumstances. Their circumstances are about to change. They're strutting boldly. Now watch what happens in verse 9. Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea. Now watch verse 10. Watch verse 10 because here comes the crisis. And, and this would be number 3. God changes well-being into crisis. Watch this. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened, so the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. There you go. There's your crisis. Um, we don't like crisis. We don't want crisis. We don't want difficulty. We want our lives to go according to plan. But these guys are in a major league crisis. Lou, have you shown me 15 yet? Okay, good. I was getting worried. Um, there was a story in the Dallas Morning News back in um, October 28, 2001. And here's the story. 
Sherman Jackson was a little late for the share service at his church on a recent Sunday night, but that was okay. He had quite a story to share once he got there. This is from Steve uh, Blow's column in the Dallas Morning News. Sherman, 36, and his seven-year-old daughter, Alexa, had stopped for gas on their way to church. As they were about to drive away, a 30-ish fellow walked up. Hey, man, I need your help, he said. Could you please help me jump start my car? I'll pay you to help me. Sherman fretted a moment about being late for church. Then he chided himself for thinking of that over helping someone in trouble. So he invited the fellow to get in the front seat. Alexa was in the back, and they drove off. They hadn't gone far when the man reached into his pocket. I thought he was trying to get out some change to pay me for helping him, but no. He pulls out a revolver with his right hand and placed his left hand on my shoulder. He pointed the revolver into my ribcage and said, Okay, man, this is for real. You give me all of your money right now, or I'm going to unload this gun on you. Sherman was terrified, of course, and mad at himself for putting his daughter in such danger. Okay, look, here's all I have on me, he said, pulling out his money clip. Just, just take it. But the robber didn't believe him. He said, that's not all you got. Give it to me, he said, shoving the gun harder in the Sherman's ribs. Sherman, a Garland insurance agent, keeps Gideon Bibles in his car with a dollar bill tucked in each one. He gives them to homeless people. The gunman spotted one of those bills sticking out and began to scream at Sherman, you lied to me, there's more money here. Something came over Sherman just then, and he began to pray out loud. Remember that. Out loud, he began to pray, Father in heaven, hear my cry and deliver me from this present evil. And he felt a sudden calm. I lost all consciousness of worry and concern, a boldness took over. He slowed the car and began to make a U-turn, and the gunman screamed, what are you doing? This car is being turned around, Sherman replied, and I am not taking orders from you anymore. The man put the gun against Sherman's chest. You don't get it, man. You mean nothing to me. I'll pull this trigger. No, you don't understand, Sherman said. Greater is he that is in me than he is in the world. My Jesus is stronger than your gun. He could see the gunman tug on the trigger. The hammer drew back, but Sherman didn't flinch. He pulled over and stopped. He said to the gunman, I want to tell you about Jesus. The man wavered a moment, lowered his gun, and then dropped his head. When he looked up, he was crying. I am so sorry, man. I am so sorry. I was going to shoot you. Don't worry about it, Sherman said. I forgive you. And then he began to tell the man about new life through belief in Christ. Sherman urged the man to go on the church with him, but the man declined. He asked Sherman to drive him to his car back at the store. Along the way, a man, the man began to tell Sherman about all his problems. He said his name was Mike, and he reached out to shake Sherman's hand. Sherman continued talking to him about starting life anew with Christ. As they neared the grocery, Sherman said, By the way, Mike, I want my money clip back. What? The robber said, and then he meekly handed it over. And, by the way, you are keeping the New Testament, and you are going to read it like you've never read anything else before. And I'm going to be praying for you, Mike, that God will come into your life. They pulled alongside Mike's car. He got out, Sherman said, with the revolver in one hand, the Bible in the other, and tears in his eyes. And then Sherman drove on the church. Some readers wrote to the columnists to say they didn't believe this story. A follow-up article appeared in the same newspaper, however, revealed 
A follow-up article that appeared revealed that Mike was suspected of involvement in a rash of 15 or nearly so identical robberies in the area. Police officers informed Sherman that he was the only one who got his money back. A few weeks later, Mike was captured and is now in regular contact with Sherman. That's quite a story. This Christian guy, I mean, was frightened and scared, as you would be frightened and scared, but suddenly there was a change in him, wasn't there? There was a boldness. Why was there a boldness? Let's go back and see what it says. It, it, it said something came over Sherman just then, and he began to pray out loud, Father in heaven. You know what this guy did? You know what this guy did? He was in a crisis. He just going to church, and suddenly there was a crisis. Was this crisis a mistake? Was this crisis an accident? Was this crisis? No. He cried out. Go back to, uh, go back to Exodus 14, verse 10. I want you to see what happened. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. Wouldn't you be frightened? You'd be as frightened as this guy in the car with the guy pulling a gun on him. They were terrified. They were so, because, hey, listen, it was all over. There's no escape. The Red Sea's in front of us, mountains around us. This guy's army's behind. There's no way out. We thought we were home free. We thought the slavery was over. And now, I, I mean, it's over. It's finished. It's done. We're back to where we were. They were, I mean, they were just petrified. And when they got petrified, notice what they did. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, that's exactly what this guy did when he was robbed. I was working on this, and, and I, I looked at that, and I go, they cried out. I said, they cried out. You know what? Somebody's done a book on this, on crying out. Somebody's done a book. Somebody sent me a book about crying out to God. So I start looking for it, and I had a heck of a time finding it because it's so small, and it was stuck in between two book, big books. Uh, about four years ago, somebody sent me a book called The Power of Crying Out uh, by Bill Gothard. And let me just read something to you that he says in this little book. After knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and teaching and studying his word for many years, it was only recently that I made what was for me a life-changing discovery. I saw that the Bible makes a distinction between prayer and crying out to God. What I have noticed since that time is that he will arrange or allow circumstances to arise that seem to have no solution and then do nothing to remove the problem until I cry out and not one second sooner. Each situation seems so hopeless and sometimes a cry seems so futile. Yet this is precisely, and I want you to get this, Yet this is precisely the setting God wants in order to demonstrate his loving care and his powerful hand of protection. In every circumstance, the need to cry out is a humbling reminder of my total inability to accomplish anything significant for God. And the result of crying out is a wonderful demonstration of the supernatural power to achieve all that is needed. In moments of fear, anxiety, and trouble, the right step towards experiencing God's powerful deliverance and protection is to simply cry out, to use our voice in fervent appeal for his help. Interesting little book because he just goes through the scripture and shows 
situation after situation after situation where they audibly cried out. You know, the first thing I thought of was a story that my dad has told me since I was this high. When I was just a little baby, my dad worked graveyard shift at an oil refinery in Bakersfield, California. And, uh, and I know that oil refinery. If you know anything about Bakersfield, up by Bakersfield College, there are these cliffs, there are these bluffs, and they drop down several hundred feet, and there's a two-lane road that winds down, and the refinery sits down in that valley. And my dad's driving after work. He's shot. He's exhausted. He's, it's, it's, still, it's still dark, and he is, he's driving on that road, and, I mean, it's a drop-off several hundred feet. And my dad falls asleep. And something jarred him, and he woke up, and he sees a truck coming at him. And he is veered, and there's a car next to him, and there's the drop-off, and there is no way out. And you know what my dad told me when I was just a little boy? He said, Steve, he said, I, there was no way, I mean, there was no way out. And I just cried out, Jesus. And he said, and nothing happened. I didn't hit the truck. I didn't drop off this car. Somehow, I've never forgotten that story. I've never forgotten that story. That was a crisis that happened in my dad's life. He cried out. What did they do here? They cried out. You know what happens to us guys? And here's number four on my list. God changes complacency to desperation. Is it not true that we just like life? I think, I think I said this last week. We like life to be pain-free. Yeah. We just, that's, I mean, then we set our goals and we set our agendas and we got our, you know, objectives. We, 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 they're all pain-free. Hey, if I had my way, I'd never need to buy Tylenol. And neither would you. But what happens and, and does God bless us, and does God provide for us, and has God been good to us? Absolutely. Just unbelievably, he has been so good to us. But here's the deal. We can only take so much prosperity, and we can take only so much blessing without having it affect us. And then what happens is we begin to get complacent. We begin to get comfortable. Our hearts subtly begin to turn. In Deuteronomy 6, when God was going to take them finally into the promised land after the 40-year wait, and God said, listen, I'm going to give you houses you didn't build. I'm going to give you cisterns you didn't dig. I'm going to give you crops you didn't plant. In other words, I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. I'm going to give you stuff you never imagined. Be careful. Be careful that your heart doesn't turn from me. See, here's the fallacy, the prosperity gospel that's out there. God will just prosper, he'll prosper. No, God does not do that. Because God is a good father. If he just prospers, 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 we can't handle undiluted prosperity because of our hearts. So what he does to turn us from complacency is that he'll get us into a crisis and a point of desperation. That's why he does this. I pastored three churches. Um... I, I was asked to leave one of them. I know that's shocking to you. <laughs> the, the whole issue revolved around geography, believe it or not. Churches are funny. Uh, it, and it wasn't the whole church. It was just an internal issue on the board. 
I thought the church ought to be over there. It just made sense. And they wanted the church to be over here in an older neighborhood where these guys had all grown up and had ties. And, and, and you say, that's not big of an issue. It's really not that big, but it became big. And it really became a point of contention. And at one point, it, it, uh, we had to bring someone in to kind of smooth it out because it was getting a little intense. And there was so much animosity that one of the things they, they said was, uh, here's what we agreed on. I'll tell you what, you preach on Sunday, but don't come in during the week. Aren't you working on some book? I said, yeah. Why don't you work on that book? And you just come in on Sunday and preach. So that's what I did. And uh, these weren't bad guys. We just had an issue. And the whole time I'm writing this book that was going to be called Point Man, I was under a lot of pressure. It was kind of a crisis every week. And about the day before we'd have a board meeting, I'd get a knot in my gut just hoping we could get through the meeting. And uh, I uh, and I got the book done, and three weeks later I got a phone call uh, from my associate pastor and said, Steve, we had, there was a meeting this morning, no, uh, an elders meeting. He said, there was no elders meeting this morning. He goes, yeah, there was. They just didn't want you to know. They want your resignation. I said, over what? They just want you to go. I said, I'm not going. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, they'll, they'll fire you. I said, what are they going to fire me for? Stealing money? Sleeping with women? I'm starting to get my burr up a little bit here. <laughs> and uh, Mary, we're just sitting there at breakfast, getting, you know, Mary, and you know, she's listening to all this. And he said, see, the, the, well, you know what, I'm not, this is nuts. I said, you know, when are we going to meet? He said, they won't meet with you. And what? They will, they will not meet with you. You have to go through me. Anyway. Yeah, it was unbelievable. That's called a crisis. <laughs> and I had a few more things to say and hung up the phone and Mary picked up part of it and, she were, and I told her. And I thought, you know what? And I said, let me tell you something, Mary. The church doesn't know anything about this. But if those guys think that the church is going to go with them, the church will go with me. I'll show those suckers in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and, you know, I'm ready, you know, I, you know. And she said, Steve, she said, hey, let me ask you a question. She said, do you think God wants you here long term? And I said, no. She said, well, then why would you fight him? Because I'm an idiot. <laughs> I don't know what I said. Don't you hate it when your wife just cuts through the stuff? <laughs> she said, Steve, why would you fight him? And I said, I don't know. This kind of hacks me off. She said, Steve, you know what? I think this is the hand of God. Oh, gosh. She said, Steve, every time you speak at a conference, you get five, six, seven, eight invitations. Would you come and do this? Would you come and do this? And you just finished this book to men. 
and you were just in California, remember when you did that deal? And there were 2,500 people there, four nights in a row? I'm not saying this to toot my heart. I'm just telling you what, what was going on. And Alan and Jim were there, who you've known since high school. And after that last night, you guys went out to eat. And they said, Steve, you ought to be doing this full time. You're not that good of a pastor. Let's find something you can do. <laughs> she said, Steve, I think, God, this, I think God's moving you on. And I said, yeah, but Mary, look it. I've turned down. All this stuff comes in for a year away, a year and a half away. I've turned down everybody. How are we going to make it? She said, she said God will take care of us. I, I said, I know, but, but how are we going to make it? <laughs> That's literally what I said. She said, Steve, I don't know. But you know what? If God's leading us, he'll make a way for us. And I'm going to tell you something. I, I mean, I was sweating. Because it was crystal clear to me that I was supposed to leave. I wasn't going to split a church. Oh, and by the way, I'll just tell you this. Three years later, those guys, we got that all worked out. They're good guys. We resolved that. And we prayed with each other. And one of the key guys, we met at a 1,500 miles away at an event. And he saw me and he said, Steve. And I turned and I thought, oh, shoot. <laughs> and he said, I knew I was going to see you here. There were 70,000 guys at this Promise Keepers. I said, what are you doing here? He said, we moved here last year. He said, I saw you were coming, and I prayed for six months that God would let me run into you here. And we worked it out in the hallway, about 30 minutes. So it all got fixed. But, so I'm sweating. I said, well, all right. Well, so, you know, Mary had to go to the store or something. So I'm there. So I had to take a walk. Now, wait a minute. I don't have a job. I'm out. I mean, I, how are we going to make it? Fine? And I mean, I walked. And I walked. And I'm going to tell you what I did. I cried out to God. I wasn't praying now. I lay me down to sleep. I'm walking and there's nobody around and I am calling out to God. And I had to walk it off for about two hours. I get back into the house. I'm there about, I don't know, several minutes. The phone rings. I pick it up. Steve, Tom. Oh, Tom, yeah. The attorney. Mary had been in an automobile accident three years before and been hit. Uh, somebody hit her, you know, missed up her neck and there were some medical bills and the company wanted us to sign off well she needed treatment they wouldn't do it so I had to go get this guy that I knew from another church and he said it's going to take a while and uh, it took three years but that morning he called me he said Steve I got a settlement for you and the bills were about 5,000 bucks he said I got a settlement for you I said oh man great we can finally that doctor's been so patient we can probably we can finally pay him off and he goes I got you 25,000 I said, the bills were five. He said, I got you 25. And I just, I've been sweating for two hours. How are we going to make it? How are we going to make it? I don't see any possible, I don't. And the next day at noon, I had a check for $25,000. I don't think I'd ever had $7,500 in my whole life before then. I'm not exaggerating. Then we had to put her, I know I'm out of time. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Uh, I, 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 I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, let me give you three more minutes and, tell, and I could go on, but let me just tell you this. So, so now, now I know how we can make it for a while, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty good. And so we are, let's put our house up. And then that night we said, all right, if I'm going to do all these concerts, where are we going to live? And you know what? In about 45 minutes, we figured out we're going to, we're going to move to Dallas. 
my brother lived in Coppell, and Mary's sister was here, and I'd been to the seminary. We had friends. Let's go to Dallas. I'm going to fly. Let's cut the country in half. And uh, so we did. We said, we're going to Dallas. So we put our house up. Houses weren't selling. There's a lousy economy in that, in that town. And the average house, I found out, was up nine, ten months before it sell. And our hope, this was February, our hope was to get to Dallas by the time school started. So we put our house up. We got time. We had one showing in 90 days. It wasn't looking good. It wasn't looking good at all. And then somebody told me, I heard somebody say something in a restaurant, that there are no houses on our side of town for rent, no four-bedroom houses. And so I actually called an agent, and I said, what do you have for a bed? And he goes, we don't have anything. There's not a house to be had, a four-bedroom. And I thought, maybe I could do a lease with an option to buy. So I talked to Mary, and I put a little ad in the paper. And I did an open house that Sunday. And Mary took the kids down to the neighborhood pool. And it, I was, so I had the Masters on. It was that Masters, Greg Norman Blue. You remember that? So I'm watching this Masters, and I'm hoping so. I get a call, and some guy calls me. He says, yeah. I said, come on by. So about 20 minutes later, there's a knock on the door, and here's this guy this guy and his wife and four little stair-step kids. Hey, we, we called. I said, yeah, come on in. Look around. You guys look around. I'm just sitting here watching Norman blow this thing. And so they look around. About five minutes later, the guy comes downstairs and he goes, hey, he said, are you a Christian? I go, yeah. He said, yeah, I saw your books upstairs. And uh, now I got to tell you this. We'd had one person look at this house and it was getting kind of tight for us to sell and move. So I started crying out. Mary started crying out. That's when we had the open house. The guy said, I saw your books upstairs. Yeah, I'm a Christian. He said, uh, well, I'm just finishing, I just finished my internship. I'm a medical doctor. I'm joining a practice here in town. He said, I got to tell you something. My wife loves this house. But uh, I don't have the down payment. He said, this lease is option to buy. How do you do that? I said, I don't have a clue. But you know what? <laughs> we'll find out. And he said, we love this house. And so his wife came down here. He said, you mind if we pray before I go? No. I said, man, let's pray. So we prayed, and it was great. And so they leave, and about an hour later, he calls me up. He says, hey, can I bring my pastor by? I wanted to show you. He's my best friend. I said, come on. Bring him over. So he brings his pastor. He's looking, you know, and then we pray before the pastor leaves. And I'm not kidding you. An hour later, maybe an hour and a half later, he calls back. He says, do you mind if my wife, if we come by and bring my pastor's wife, she wants to see it. I said, bring him over. <laughs> this is all true. I said, why don't we have the Sunday evening service here? <laughs> so they bring all, we're having prayer meetings all afternoon. Now Mary's still at the pool. And so, you know, we're doing all this and the, the Shekinah glory and it's just unbelievable. <laughs> and, and then they leave and we're going to, you know, in a year the guy's going to buy the house. We're set. We're going to Dallas. Mary comes in with the kids. She said, how'd it go? I said, you're not going to believe this. And I told her, she said, that's unreal. The next day, we go to Chili's to have lunch just to kind of celebrate. I'm walking in the Chili's. There's a guy sitting there with his wife. We're going to be seated. I don't know this guy's name. I don't know what he does. I just know, you know that I've seen him at this church over here before. And that's all I know about him. We had mutual friends. And I said, hey, how you doing? He goes, good. He goes, hey, I hear you're going to Dallas. And I go, yeah. And he said, oh, that's good. He goes, have you sold your house yet? I said, well, no, but I just leased it to a guy who's joining the medical practice in town. He said, really? I go, yeah. He said, what's his name? And I told him, he goes, he's coming to work for me. I said, really? I said, hey, give him a raise so he can buy my house. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> and we're just talking, isn't it great? We're going to lease something. 
The next night, my phone rings. It's the guy going to lease my house. He goes, hey, Steve, I got the money to buy your house. I said, what? He said, I got the down payment to buy your house. I said, you're kidding. He goes, no. And we can close it anytime, you know, in the next two weeks if you want. I said, how'd you get the money? He said, well, didn't you run into Bob at Chili's? <laughs> I said, yeah. Well, he called me up and he said, does your wife really like that? He said, she loves it. He said, why don't I just advance you the down payment? But we were in crisis for months, and before that, I was in crisis for two years. My kids love that story. They love that story. We're driving down to move to Dallas. Mary and I are talking. She said, Steve, you know what? Because I'm going to do all these conferences, family conferences. She said, Steve, you know what? I think you ought to focus on men. I said, men? Nobody focuses on men. This is a year before Promise Keepers. She says, I said, men? Nobody focuses. She said, well, that's why you ought to do it. I said, no, you, nobody, men, no, they don't even have men's conferences. Yeah, you just do a breakfast, you know? She said, well, your book's on men. Yeah, I said, I know, you could never do that. And you know, last week, Lou sent me a listing of all the conferences we've done, and over the last 17 years, I've done over 600 men's conferences. That's the Lord. What crisis are you in that he has designed? He's got a plan. And he wants to show you his greatness. Let's pray. We're grateful, Lord. I think of David in Psalm 57, 2, who said, I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will sin from heaven and help me. And that's what you do. So the guys that are fighting fear and anxiety, let them know you're with them. You know right where they are. Show them your goodness at the right time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.